Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. Good morning. That's getting better and better as we uh, figure it out. Hopefully this is the last week um, I can put partial weight on it uh, this coming week. So hopefully I'll be hobbling after that. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, there is a very lonely cricket who thinks it's nighttime back there. If you have not heard that yet, <laughs> just want to get that out there. If you're real quiet, there it is. Can you hear it? Yeah. So, but you know what? He's part of God's kingdom too. So he or she, he can, they, they can be there, you know, um, and do their thing. So I want to start with a story this morning. A, a few years ago, after a gathering here at Restore, a young man with a, a wide smile walked up to me and said, hey, Pastor Zach, do you have a minute to talk? Now, I've never seen this young man before, um, but he looked really kind, and I said, of course, what's, what's up, man? And he said, well, I need to point out all the things that you just said that were really wrong. I need to point that out to you. Now, listen, I'm used to disagreement, right? My goal is not that we have ideological or theological uniformity. I'm incredibly blessed to be a part of a diverse church family in a myriad of ways, and I often joke that the litmus test for being a part of Restore can't be agreeing with everything that I preach because I don't even agree with everything that I preach, right? I go back like, you know, weeks or months later and I watch old sermons and I'm like, who was that guy? Why was he saying those things? You know, I would say that differently now, right? And so that, that can't be the litmus test. So like I said, I'm used to disagreement, but what caught me a little off guard, aside from the, the big smile that accompanied the laundry list of my errors was this, the way this young man phrased his comment. I need to point out all the things you said that were wrong. I need to do that. And after talking for a few minutes, I asked him about it. I said, hey, hey can, I, can I just ask you about the, the way that you first brought this up? You said that you needed to. So why did you say that you need to point out my wrongness? He said, that's my job. I said, really? Who gave you that job? Can I sign up for this job somewhere? The application's open. Can you tell me about it? I said, who gave you that job? And he said, God did. He said, God is always quick to point out everything we do wrong. And so we are required to do the same thing for others. We ended up talking for like 30 minutes, but I could not stop thinking about what he'd said. God is always quick to point out everything we do wrong. And so we need to do the same thing for everybody else. This young man's understanding of God's character informed his character. Who he thought God was is who he wanted to be. Scripture teaches that God created humanity in God's own image, but our experiences with people show that many times we have returned the favor, so to speak, recreating God in our image so that God looks like us and thinks like us, and votes like us, and shares all of our varied preferences. Scott McKnight, who's a pastor and professor we had on our summer mixtape a few years ago, uh, he's a New Testament professor at Northern Seminary in Chicago, and every semester, to kick off his class on the person and work of Jesus, he would have the whole class fill out two surveys. 
One with questions about what the student believed and liked and disliked and preferred, and then another about what Jesus believed, liked, disliked, and preferred. The survey questions were identical except for the subject. One was the student and one was Jesus. And Scott says that 90% of the time, the answers on both surveys were exactly the same. 90% of the time. Our understanding of who God is and what God is like will inform who we think we are and what we think we should be like. The Jesuit priest, Father Greg Boyle, puts it like this. Nothing is more consequential in our lives than the notion of God we hold. Not God, the notion of God. This is what steers the ship. Our idea of God will always call the shots. Pastor John Montcomer says it like this. What you think about God will shape your destiny in life. Because if we have a distorted understanding of who God is, then we will naturally have a distorted relationship with God and be unable to experience the fullness of life that Jesus wants for us. So it stands to reason that having a correct understanding of God is incredibly important, which is why we're kind of kicking off this year of healing and wholeness with a sermon series called The Nature of God. We're going to spend the next six weeks looking at the nature of God, who God is and what God is like. Because the truth is, so many of us need to experience healing when it comes to our understanding of God. We've been given some bad messages. We've been given some bad examples. And thankfully, we don't have to wonder or guess what God is like because God has actually described God's self to us through Scripture with the most vivid description coming in Exodus chapter 34. And I want to set the scene for us this morning. So God has just used Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and toward the promised land. And most of us know this story, whether you have church background or not, right? Moses goes and he petitions Pharaoh and then the the Red Sea parts, right? The Israelites all go through. And so this has happened, right? God has just done this incredible miracle, freeing these folks from slavery, And the Israelites are are traveling toward the promised camp and they've set up the promised land and they've set up camp at the base of Mount Sinai. And then Moses has climbed up the mountain where scripture, scripture says he would go and talk with God face to face. That's the language that scripture uses. And at one point during these conversation, Moses makes a request. Exodus 33, 18 and 19. Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. So in ancient Hebrew culture, a name is more than just what you were called. It's a description of who you are. So when God says, I will proclaim my name, that's God saying he's about to show and tell Moses exactly who he is. And so it finally happens in the next chapter. Here's how God describes himself. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him. And proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, The Lord, the Lord, the God of compassion and grace. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. So I put six characteristics in bold up there that God gives us about God's self. Compassionate, gracious, loving, faithful, forgiving, 
and justice-oriented. So these six characteristics, they're not just a description of God's nature. They're actually how we're going to break down these next six weeks in this series. So we're going to examine one of those characteristics each week, talking about the implications it has for our journey toward healing and wholeness. So today we begin with the first one. Our God is a God of compassion. Our God is a God of compassion. The Hebrew word for compassion here is from a root word meaning female womb. How many of you thought that was what it was going to mean? It's a root word meaning female womb. Shout out to all the ladies. It is meant to be a word picture for the way a mother feels toward her infant child. This is the way God feels about us. Now, we often hear God compared to a father. We just sang about that. But did you know that scripture also compares God to a mother who loves and protects us as her children, no matter what comes? We see it when the prophet Isaiah speaks for God later in the Old Testament. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no compassion? There's that word for the child she has born. But even if that were possible, I would never forget you. Now, here's the really important thing about this word compassion. In both the Old and New Testaments, compassion is always action oriented, always, meaning it's not simply a feeling. It's a driving force behind movement. It takes us somewhere. So let me show you what I mean. There's this famous story in scripture about two women fighting over a baby boy, both claiming that they are his rightful mother. Y'all remember this story? Give me a nod if you've heard this one. So there aren't DNA tests and there's no kind of indisputable way of demonstrating maternity. They bring the baby to King Solomon. So Solomon is this guy who is known for his wisdom. Now he had like 400 wives or something. So I'm not sure about the wisdom of that. But other than that, he was known for his wisdom. And he comes up with a plan. He tells them that the only fair thing to do is to cut the baby in half and give a part of it to each woman. Here's what happened. Then the woman whose son was alive spoke to the king because she was deeply moved with compassion for her son. Please, my Lord, she said, give her the living baby. Do not kill him. The true mother, moved with compassion, would do absolutely anything to keep her child from being harmed. This is the same kind of compassion God has for us as his children. And we see this most vividly in the life of Jesus. Now, I know I say this all the time, but that's only because it's so important. So the historic Christian belief is not simply that Jesus was a great teacher or this revolutionary who changed the world. He was those things, but he wasn't only those things. See, Jesus is God in the flesh. God became a person. And as the first chapter of John says, made his home with us. Now, this is important for a myriad of reasons, but one of them is what I mentioned a second ago. Because Jesus is God in the flesh, that means that he is the fullest expression we have of what God is like. So when we wonder, what is this God like? We can not only look to descriptions like in Exodus, we can look to the person and work of Jesus and see the embodied God in the flesh demonstrating who he is and what he is like. So we get to see the characteristics of God on full display through the person and work of Christ. And let me tell you, Jesus was all about compassion, like all about compassion. 
Just listen with me to a few times Jesus demonstrates God's boundless compassion toward humanity during his time on earth. Mark 1, starting in verse 40. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, he said, you can heal me and make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, Jesus said, be healed. It happens again when Jesus sees a widow who has lost her son. Luke 7, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he was moved with compassion toward her. And he said, don't cry. That's such a great part of this story. God in the flesh sees a widow mourning over her deceased son, is moved with compassion and says, don't cry. Beautiful humanity in Christ. Then he went up, touched the coffin they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Moved with compassion. It happens again when Jesus sees that people are hungry. Matthew 15. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I am moved with compassion for this crowd. Because they have already been with me three days and they have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may faint along the way. Moved with compassion. It happens again when Jesus meets two blind men, Matthew 20. Moved with compassion. Jesus touches their eyes and at once they receive their sight and followed him. I could keep going and going and going because the truth is at least a dozen times that we know of recorded in the gospel accounts of Jesus's life, he is described as being, quote, moved by compassion to help someone in need. But I just have to show you one more because it's my absolute favorite. You may know that Jesus once told a story about who God is and what God is like that we've come to know as the prodigal son. This is my favorite story in all of scripture. I think it is the clearest picture we have of God's parental love toward all of humanity, both children that are lost and children that are found. And in this story, the father represents God and the sons represent humanity. Now, the younger son, the one we come to know later as the prodigal son, decides to take his father's money, leave home, and try to find fullness of life and fulfillment and identity someplace else. And by doing so, he essentially tells the father, I wish you were dead. I want my money. I want out. I want to do my own thing. And the father grants the wish, gives him the money, and he leaves. But after the prodigal son leaves home, things quickly fall apart. He runs out of money. There's a famine in the land. His so-called friends abandon him, and he quickly finds himself destitute. We pick up the story in Luke chapter 15, verse 17. When he, that's the prodigal son, came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Now, after completely turning his back on the father and trying to find life someplace else in all the wrong places, the prodigal son decides to return home and ask forgiveness. 
He even rehearses an apology, right? He comes up with it as he is on his way home. I imagine him walking down that road, rehearsing that apology. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I imagine, right? He's just running through his head because when he knows he sees his dad, he wants to deliver this apology. But then as he comes up over the hill so that he can finally see his home, his father, the most amazing thing happens. Scripture says while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was what? Moved with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now this scene is incredible for a lot of reasons. But I want to pick out a couple really quick. First, the father saw the son while he was still a long way off. Now, a wealthy landowner like the father would have been busy with daily affairs, right? Kind of running everything. He would have had business in town. He would have business as the homestead. But it seems from this story, we can surmise that the father has devoted at least a portion of each day to just standing and waiting and watching for his son. That's how desperately he misses his baby boy. He is just waiting for him. And then second, high-class men, or really men in the first century culture at all, they did not run, like ever, right? It was shameful for them to run. And they also wore huge robes and heavy jewelry that prevented most of it anyway. And so when it says that when the dad saw him a far way off and starts to run toward him, that means that he tosses off, probably, the jewelry, He has to hoist up the robes so that he can get a running start. His legs can get going and he can get to his son as quickly as possible. Dad doesn't care about how it looks. He doesn't care about what's shameful, about what's okay, about what's culturally appropriate. He is taking off toward his son. And remember, the last time these two spoke, the son basically told the father he wished he was dead. But in this scene... There's no rebuke from the father. There's no telling him to pay back his debt or work his way back into the family. There is only overwhelming compassion and relentless love. Now, I can imagine, right, the younger son is probably a little taken aback. But he remembers the apology he had rehearsed, and he starts to stumble through it. Verse 21, then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. So they began to celebrate. The father doesn't even let the son finish his apology. I love that part so much. He interrupts him because there's no need for it. Listen, God's love and compassion for us are not predicated on our contrition. He already loves us. He is already moved with compassion toward us. Now this next part, if you miss everything else, I just want you to get this because I know a lot of us, me included, need to hear this today. Even when everything else falls apart, even when our lives feel unmanageable and our hope is fading, this truth remains. Our God is love and we are God's beloved. 
Our God is love, and we are God's beloved. And his compassion toward you and toward me and toward every other person in this world knows no bounds. He is constantly moving toward us. When you think about who God is, when you wonder what God is like, I want this story about the prodigal son and his father to come to your mind. Because this, y'all, this is what God's compassion toward us looks like. Compassion is God running toward you, hugging you, kissing you, interrupting your apology, binding up your wounds, and celebrating the fact that you are his kid and you are home. Now, God's compassion toward us, it's not just observational in nature. This is really important. It's not just sympathy. God is not up in heaven just looking down and feeling bad for us as we try to navigate the brokenness of this world. God's love for us is never stagnant. God's compassion moves him toward us. The persecutor of Christians turned pastor named Paul put it like this in his letter to the Ephesian church. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, that word there, mercy, is related to compassion. It's like the same root. Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The entire life and work of Jesus Christ, including his death and resurrection, were motivated by God's love and compassion for us. It's kind of overwhelming, actually, right? When you stop and think about it. I think the late Rachel Held Evans said it best. God's ways are higher than our ways, not because he is less compassionate than we are, but because he is more compassionate than we can ever imagine. So what does this mean for us? How does this practically help? How does this practically move us in life? Well, I think it's pretty simple. It's not always easy, but it's pretty simple. We are called to number one, gratefully receive God's compassion for yourself. And number two, generously share God's compassion with your neighbor. Gratefully receive God's compassion for yourself and then generously share God's compassion with your neighbor. Just as our God moves toward us with compassion, so we should move toward others in compassion. This is exactly what Jesus taught, Luke 6, 36. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Now listen, I don't know exactly what that looks like for you, but I do know this. I think it all starts with seeing people the way God sees them. As Father Greg Boyle, I quoted earlier, often says, there is no us and them, there is only us. If we stop othering people and we start seeing the unique image of God imprinted on each person we encounter, I promise compassion will come. If we stop making assumptions about people we don't know and actually listen to their stories, I promise compassion will come. If you just sit down with someone and ask them some questions and actually listen instead of just waiting for your turn to talk, compassion will come. And when it does, we must allow that compassion to move us into action on behalf of our neighbor. 
But as I said a moment ago, I think it all starts with receiving the compassion God wishes to lavish on us. So we're going to wrap up this morning by creating some space for us to do that, for us to receive that compassion. Last week, I mentioned that many of us have been told versions of God that need some serious kind of deconstructing and reconstructing. So many of us need to experience healing when it comes to our understanding of who God is and what God is like. And there's this song that we've sung a bunch over the years here at Restore that I think really echoes this truth. And it's called Good, Good Father. And it starts like this. I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like. This song always gets me. Like, I'm a fairly emotional person anyway. But I swear the first two lines especially get me. Because this is my story. I've heard a lot of stories about what people say and think God is like. Some of them were really unhelpful. Some of them were really harmful, right? And some of them still come up when I'm just interacting in the world. Let me tell you a quick story. So I hurt my foot, <laughs> as you know. And, um, and I haven't been able to put weight on it for a month. And I'm a natural achiever. If you're into Enneagram, I'm a, I'm a three. And that means I find a lot of my identity in accomplishing things, getting things done or checking off lists or whatever. And for about a month, <laughs> I've not been able to do much of that. And there's this humility that comes with that, right? There's this giving up of control. There's this letting other people help you. There's a lot of really difficult stuff wrapped up in that. But I tell you that there's one thing that's really deeply wrapped up in that for me. And that's this, this old tape that plays that said, God doesn't care if I'm not doing something. God doesn't like me if I'm not accomplishing things. God doesn't really want me around if I'm not able to further his kingdom or share the gospel or whatever. That I'm as loved by God as I am useful to him. That's come up over the last month. And I think for so many of us, whether that's specifically how you are and what you think, or if it's something totally different, we have heard a thousand stories of what people think God is like, or what people say God is like. And I'm telling you that if it does not match up with what Jesus is like, with this description that God gives of himself, of compassionate and loving and forgiving and caring, of Jesus so moved by his love for us that he lays his life down for us. If it does not match up with that, that's not who he is. And we have to do the hard work of disentangling that stuff in our hearts and our minds I'm telling you, even as someone who has helped people with that work for a decade or more, it still comes up. And so this morning, we're going to close with just this time of letting us all sit 
in who God is and what God is like. Because I want you to listen to these next couple of lines. I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night. And you tell me that you are pleased and that I'm never alone. You are a good, good father. So whether you want to stand and sing, whether you want to sit and pray, whether you just want to, to not move and just receive the compassionate love that God has for you, this is your time to do a little untangling, to really bask in who God is and what God is like, that our God is love and that you are his beloved. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to do that together. Lord God, you are, you are good even when things are not. You are with us even when we feel alone. You are loving and caring and forgiving and faithful even when it doesn't feel like it, even when we hear the voices that say you're not. So God, I pray that whatever the stories are that we've heard, about who you are and what you are like, God, that you would use this time, use your word, use the person and work of Jesus to show us who you are and what you're like. That we would gratefully receive the compassion you have for us and that we would generously share it with every other person we encounter. You are good to us, God. Let us receive that goodness and share that goodness with others. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.